Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. I'll hand that off to you. All right, good morning. Good morning. There we go. There we go. All right. We are wrapping up a series today in Epiphany. Uh, Epiphany is just the the way in which Jesus Christ makes himself known uh, to the world around him. And so the way that we've been walking through that uh, throughout pretty much the month of January has been just how Christ is making himself known through the local church. Um, So what is the mission of the church? How is the church fleshing that out when it comes to vision? And and really what we looked at over the last few weeks um, is just the idea of essentially our mission statement as a church, that we exist to glorify God. um, And we exist to glorify God by making disciples. Um, Those are really the two primary commands that God has given us. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you kind of combine those two things, it fleshes itself out in the go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them uh, in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so those are really the two hinges that the church literally just operates on is glorifying God and making disciples. And now, as we've said, there's so many ways in which you can glorify God and make disciples. And so we try to kind of distill that down into four categories uh, that we believe are discipleship traits. And so if you are a disciple of Christ, we would say you would operate out of these four categories, or these would be fruit in your life uh, that, would, that would be going on on a daily basis. And so we said uh, we exist to glorify God by making disciples through these four traits, gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered community, gospel-centered service, and gospel-centered multiplication. We believe that a disciple who is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ will worship, will belong to a community of faith, will serve the world around them and that community of faith, and then, as we will talk about today, will also begin to multiply themselves as they are making disciples of all nations. So today, we're going to be looking at this idea, and I want to start off with a quote from Linda Ellis, uh, a popular American poet. She says this, she brings attention to the most important mark on any tombstone, and it's the dash. Oftentimes overlooked, if even noticed at all, the dash subtly rests between the birth date and the day of dying. The simple punctuation mark represents the narrative of a unique life, a fingerprint of sorts, stamping the stone with a story to be told. As one story fades into the recesses of memories and histories, another story is being made and constructed. She goes on to say that the cycle of life continues from dash to dash, essentially. The the cyclical nature of life depends on one factor, multiplication. And so I love that. She actually, in in her book, she uh, dives into this idea of uh, everything we know 
uh, everything that exists right now is essentially a transfer of knowledge, a transfer of information, a transfer of legacy, a transfer of somebody passing on to another person a foundation or viewpoints. This is the same thing with culture. Culture exists because culture was multiplied. It was passed along. It continues to exist because we transfer it to one another. And so the same thing is in the life of the church. The life of the church continues to exist because people have taken these commands from the Lord to love him and to love one another in the process of making disciples. And they've taken that, it literally is one of my favorite passages, 2 Corinthians 5. Um, a lot of times people can say like, well, Jesus is the one making disciples. Yes, he is, but he gives us that ministry of reconciliation. He passes it along to us, just like what he did with the original 12 disciples. He passes that along to them, and they are to go and do what was been done for them. We are to go and multiply what has been done for us. Nobody is in this room without somebody telling you about Jesus. Right? I mean, it's true. N nobody is in this room without somebody passing along to you who Christ is. We're sitting down with you over coffee, having you over for dinner, being a coworker of yours, being a parent, leading you along. Like everyone's in this room because somebody shared with them Christ. That's multiplication. That's multiplication. And what, what I want to do today is, is kind of hopefully build a biblical foundation for why multiplication is true, why it's good, and why it's necessary for the church to continue to multiply, for the church to continue to grow and to mature, and why it's healthy for us to multiply. A lot of times you can get into um, church growth uh, dialogues at times, and there will be churches that will say, you know, well, we're not growing because we're in a season of pruning, and we're in a season of um, kind of decline, and, and, and it's necessary for us to be in this for a season, and at the end of the day, like, I'm, I'm, in my theology, like, I cannot program growth. Like, there's nothing that I can do coming into this room and putting an equation on the board and saying, guys, this is exactly how we're going to grow the district church. Like, I can't do that. Like, I know it in my understanding of what God does, Jesus builds his church. Jesus grows his church. Jesus multiplies his church. So I know from, from a theological foundation, that's absolute. If Jesus wants the district church to grow, it'll grow. And if he wants the district church to fail, it'll fail. That's on Jesus. But what I do know is from what we've seen in Scripture is that for those people who are trusting in Christ, who are following in his footsteps, who are leading a life that is, that is him living in them and through them, as Galatians 2.20 tells us, that when we are doing that, we by nature will share what's within us. Now, again, I can't, as we share, cause someone to, come, to be, become a believer or come to our church. But what I do know is that we will multiply. We will express what it is that we so love and treasure that is within us. We can't help but get it out. We will multiply. And so I want to give you a biblical foundation for this. Um, and I have Mark Dever to kind of thank for a lot of this. He's a pastor out in D.C. area. Um, Jesus himself once taught the disciples, and he said this, with, 
with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? In other words, what's a tangible illustration I can use to teach you about the kingdom of God and what it's like? Jesus goes on to say, it's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests inside its shade. That's what the kingdom of God is like, according to Jesus, that it starts out as this really tiny little seed, and that once it's planted, it then grows up to be larger than any other tree that's around it, to where then the culture around it, or the context and environment, actually begins nurturing off of this little seed that grew up into a tree begins living in it, begins nesting there, begins finding uh, nourishment there. I mean, we think about that when it comes to the life of a believer and the life of a church as a church is planted within a community. Does it grow up with individual Christians and believers that other people around are finding sanctuary in their lives, that are being nourished by their lives, that are being cared for by their lives and their existence? We see multiplication right in the beginning of the Bible. We find God commanding even the creatures of the land and the sea to multiply. Genesis 1 verse 22 says, God blessed them, the creatures, and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the water in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Multiplication is woven into the fabric of creation itself, designed by God even among the creatures. Genesis 1 28, he turns this Uh, This same idea of being fruitful and multiplying gives it as a command to humankind. He says in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So not just with the animals, but with humans as well. He's given this command to be fruitful and multiply. A few chapters later in Genesis, after God wipes out the entire a human race in the world with the judgment of the flood, he again continues with the same commission that he gives to Noah and his family. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, this, this sermon isn't just like a sermon to like uh, encourage you to have kids. <laughs> like it's, uh, it's not just that. Like, I mean, we're doing our part on making sure that we're hitting that that scripture, but at the same time, it's, it's more than that as we see this continue to flesh itself out. He promised that the kingdom of his Messiah would grow, saying in Isaiah, of the increase of his government, that is the government of the Messiah, the government of Christ, of the increase of his government, there will be peace to no end. It will increase to no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Exactly as it was prophesied in the Old Testament and exactly as Jesus himself taught, and when you think about the life of Christ, like he is literally the living illustration of the mustard seed. When we think about the life of Christ, we think about him being the seed that as he went and was buried, a seed dies. And when a seed dies, it then sprouts forth and as Jesus raises, becomes the first fruit of the kingdom of God, becomes the first fruit of the disciples, 
becomes the very tree that we are connected to that's breathing life into us as disciples of Christ. That as we grow and as we become the branches that are connected to the vine, as you see that language in John chapter 15, you begin to see that we get all of our existence and living nurtured by the vine, abiding in Christ. And that's one of the things that I actually don't have enough time to dive into today as we flesh this out, multiplication. But when it comes to multiplication, it's all about abiding. It's all about abiding. It's all about being connected to the source of Christ. And when you walk through, and and a lot of times people will just look at John 15 as the vine chapter, um, but really the foundation for the vine chapter is John chapter 14. John 14 is what sets the stage for us. It it provides for us what is necessary for us to actually be connected to the vine in order for Christ to be nurturing us as well as the vine dresser tending to us, the Father. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit, the one who actually then begins bearing the fruit in our lives as we begin multiplying. And that fruit becomes what nourishes those around us. Love, joy, peace, patience. Who actually reaps the benefit of the fruit of the Spirit? It's not just for you to be like, man, I feel so good because I'm, I'm so patient right now. No, it's like whoever you're probably dealing with in relationship, whether it's family members, coworkers, they're the ones reaping the benefit of your patience. They're being nourished by it. They're the ones partaking of the fruit of the Spirit that is coming from your life as you are being multiplied out. You see this in the New Testament as well, Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And this isn't just in the bearing of children, being fruitful and multiplying, but you're beginning to see this same concept of multiplying in the church and how the church of God is continuing to spread. Acts 6, 7 says this, the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Acts chapter 12 says, The word of God increased and multiplied, Acts 13. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region, Acts chapter 19. In this way, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Multiplication is God's plan. It it has always been his plan. It's a good plan. It's a great plan that God has put together in order for us to not just have our personal relationship with Jesus, but to have a public shared relationship with Jesus. To have a relationship with Christ that yes, in our personal relationship with him, we are fully satisfied in Christ. But our joy that we experience in Christ gets to overflow as we begin to express what we're experiencing with Christ in the way in which we begin to share Christ with those around us, as we begin to tell others why we so satisfy him, why we love him, why we feel encouraged by him, why we get to have our sins wiped clean and and have our guilty consciences cleared, to be pardoned of anything that we've ever done that's wrong and everything that we will do that is wrong, to be able to walk through life with that peace of conscience wells up within you an expression of gladness and and gratitude that you can't help but share. And if you're not a Christian, 
in this room and you're hearing these things and even maybe for the first time, if I was in your shoes, I'd be asking the question, like, why is it good to spread Christianity? Why is it good if Jesus is who he is? Why is it good to spread this and multiply this with Jesus being the leader? Because for some who aren't a believer, they might look at this and be like, you know what, this kind of sounds like those uh, totalitarian like dictators that we've heard about in history, like who want um, their message and their way of doing things, their culture to just spread over and take over everything. Why is it good for Jesus to do the same thing? Why is it good for him to, to literally um, inaugurate a kingdom in which he is uh, ruling and reigning and the top dog? Why is that a good thing? Number one, Christians believe that Jesus is actually God. He's actually God. He's God who became man without ceasing to be God. So Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not like these other earthly rulers who are grasping after power. He's God. And so he already has all power and all authority. He's not going after something he doesn't already have. He already owns everything. Everything. When he requests from his disciples resources, he already owns the resources that he's requesting from them. When he goes into a city to redeem a people, he already owns the people that he's redeeming because he's purchased them with his blood. He already has everything that he's already spreading because he's God. There's nothing that exists apart from his power, authority, and rule. This is why Colossians is able to say things like, by Christ, everything is upheld. Everything exists because he is alive and he is God. Water continues to be water because Jesus says so. All authority is his. You and I get to be who we are because Jesus says so. And with that, you and I will continue to grow and mature and multiply because Jesus says so. He's perfectly sufficient within himself and he's already the king of the universe. The second thing, why is it good news that Jesus is the king and he has established an inaugurated kingdom that one day he will bring to completion? That heaven will come to earth and that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why is that good news? Because what is the kingdom that he has come to establish? He's come to establish a kingdom that is made up of sinners who have become saints. That's why it's good news. It's good news because he left heaven to come to earth to be around all sinners like there was no one that Jesus came to earth and met and when meeting them said, wow, you're perfect. You're holy. You're good. Like even John the Baptist, who he says is the greatest person who ever lived, was still a sinner in need of Jesus, a savior. That's why John the Baptist even used the language that I must decrease Christ must increase 
that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals because John the Baptist knows, being the greatest person who ever lived, that he's a sinner not worthy of Christ. But Christ came. And as you walk through Romans, Romans is considered like one of the the deepest theological, beautiful gifts that the church has ever received from the Holy Spirit. That as you walk through Romans, the first three chapters are very simple. You're bad. You're rotten. You're a sinner. And no one, as Romans 3 says, no one is looking for Jesus. No one's seeking him. No one's searching for him. Like in our sin, where we exist. And then Romans 4 through 6 begins to unpack all that Jesus did in observing the Old Testament law, which is what we were supposed to observe and couldn't, therefore, were being revealed in the fact that we are sinners. How would we know how to sin if there wasn't a law to tell us that we were sinful? How would we know what lying is if there wasn't a law telling us that we're a liar? That's the purpose of the law, is to reveal to us who we already are, sinners. And what Jesus came to do, he didn't come to abolish and get rid of the law. What he came to do was to fulfill the law on our behalf. So this king didn't just come to earth and say, hey guys, remember those rules that like we gave you a couple thousand years ago? Like we really want you to do them. We want you to perfect them. Like I'm just here to reiterate that point. No, what he did was he came to earth and he came to earth to say, you can't. You can't do it. You don't even know how bad you can't do it. Like that's the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was for him to uh, internalize everything that we've externalized. Like we just look at the law as in like, well, I've never like slept with someone else and so I must be an okay person. He's like, well, have you ever looked at anyone with lust? Okay. I've never done this, but have you ever felt that way in your heart? Yes. So you don't even know how bad you are. And then he goes in and fulfills it for us by meeting every standard of righteousness that God has set. Jesus lived it out perfectly. He lived it out perfectly so that we don't have to live it out. This is the king. He comes not to be served, but to serve us by offering his life as a living sacrifice to the obedience of the law up to the obedience of death. So because we are, as Romans 1 through 3 says, awful, deserving of sin, or deserving of death because of our sin, Jesus then says, I'm gonna also take that on your part as well. I'm gonna go to the cross and I'm gonna die for you. I'm gonna die so that, again, I can earn your death. You don't have to die. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life with him. He gives us a free gift. Like, why is it good for Jesus to rule and spread what he's spreading? Is because there's no other better news out there than what he's bringing us. He has all power and all authority. He's king. And he's ushering in a kingdom. 
And this kingdom is providing us the only thing that we cannot provide for ourselves. We can go out and make a life for ourselves. We can go out and do the American dream. But what we can't do is pardon ourselves of our own sin. We can't forgive ourselves of our own sin. We can't clean ourselves up. We can't. Jesus comes and does that for us. That's good news. And that's worth being multiplied. And I would go on to say that a healthy church is a church that is multiplying. A healthy church is a church that understands these foundational truths that God from the very beginning has instilled multiplication in in all aspects of life. It's not just in the bearing of children, but it's in uh, the bearing of cultivating culture and passing that along. It's in the, the making of disciples. It's in the spreading the word of God so that the word of God is increasing and multiplying within each one of us. Multiplication is at every aspect of his strategy to spread his glory over the earth as the waters cover the sea. Maybe I can give you like a human illustration on the negative side of why not multiplying is unhealthy. Most of you know right now my wife is pregnant. She's 20 weeks this week, right? 20 weeks this week pregnant. And if you don't know what that means, she's halfway there, all right? Like right in the middle, halfway there. And right now, like up until this point, it's been fairly, you know, outside of the loss we had with the twin, it's been fairly an, an easy pregnancy, I mean, she even forgets that she's pregnant at times. Like, it's just, uh, just a reality here. Like, it's, it's been good. It's been comfortable for the most part. But there's going to become a part in this last 20 weeks where that baby is going to start pushing against ribs, punching throats. Like, I don't even know. Shows you where I know anatomy. Yeah. It's going to feel like that. <laughs> but this... This baby's going to get very uncomfortable. And there's going to come a moment where my wife is going to be like, it's time. It's time. This baby's got to get out. It is ready to multiply. I've got to get this baby out. It would be unhealthy for her to say, no, this baby's staying in. I just treasure this so much. No, I, like, everyone will like, you're crazy got to come out. It's got to multiply. The same thing can be for a church where if we cultivate a culture or a mentality that it's kind of a, an us versus them where we just want to focus on just our own people and we don't ever actually multiply out and begin engaging those around us then we become an unhealthy church. We become an unhealthy church. When you have a Christian who has matured, who God has poured into and raised up, who is in a sense pregnant spiritually and refuses to give birth and multiply out, I think it actually reveals more about maybe some of the foundational truths that you're believing. I think it actually reveals more about what it is that you actually treasure in your heart and in your mind. Like if, if we're attending church just because we, we 
we want one fourth of the whole process of what we say a discipleship is. If we're just attending church because we want community, we want friends, again, there's so many other groups out there that I can direct you to that are great for friendships. I mean, like literally every week I keep seeing, you know, all the different interests of trivia nights that are out there. Guarantee, just hit up some trivia nights. You're going to find some friends that probably like the same things that you like if you're going to the same trivia thing. Like church is more than just finding community and friendship. And if we just came and worshiped, but we weren't also engaged in serving those around us, then are we actually understanding what worship is? Like, this is why we use this language, is that worship is the fuel for discipleship. Community is the context for discipleship. Service is the overflow of discipleship. Multiplication is the result of discipleship. It's the result. When you've got all the ingredients stewing within an individual, you can't help but multiply. It's a result. So if if there were an equation, that's my equation for you. Those things happen. And so what's the vision for multiplication at the district church? I think we are, to the best of our abilities, we are seeking to just unleash leadership and celebrate the growth of a congregation into maturity that will one day multiply. And there's ways in which, and this is where I'm going to start drawing my five-year-old looking diagrams. There's a way in which we multiply tangibly as a result of individuals multiplying. And so I'm going to do my best to draw the loop of Indianapolis. Who said that? I heard someone, they were like, oh, geez. And it's just going to be kind of an oval circle, whatever. I think there's like a little thing right there. It's not bad. Yeah, thank you. Claps. It's my birthday. You should clap anyways. Um, all right. <laughs> thank you for that. So we've got, all right, that's my downtown. Because it's a little further, it's not in the dead middle, okay? It's a little bit further south. All right, the church is like right about here. So you're about right here right now, all right? Church wasn't always there. For those who don't know, we haven't always been in this facility. We actually started in January of 2016. Okay, 2016, we started right here with a small group at the Duran's house. And we had about 10 people. And from there, we just, for six months, focused on 10 people in a living room. I mean, we set up the whole shop. Like, we brought in a keyboard. Like, I actually think one, one time in their living room, we had, like, a full kit, drums. Like, uh, that was the last time that's happened. Um, but we sat and we walked through First Thessalonians together because First Thessalonians 2.8, having such an affectionate desire for you, we wanted to share with you not only the gospel but our very lives because you have become dear to us. We love that sandwich verse because there's affection sandwiched in it. You have become dear to us and and we have such an affectionate desire for you that we want to do two things, share life and the gospel with you. 
And again, that kind of goes back to everything that we're building kind of this church on is we want to get the gospel into you, the word of God into you. We want to teach that to you. And at the same time, we want to do life together with you. We want to walk through life together with you. We want to know you and be known by you. We were just doing that with 10 people together at the Duran's house. And then after, um, when we got about seven, eight months into it, we started services up here at the Keystone Fashion Mall. But then at the same time, we launched a second group that was like over here in this area um, around our house, kind of Northwest Broad Ripple. Then we focused on those two groups for about 10 months or so. Um, And then entering into our kind of second birthday as a church, we ended up starting the group up here in Carmel. And then we went for a season with those three groups. And this is kind of bringing us up to last year. As we were focusing on those three groups coming into the fall, we started seeing more growth. We started seeing more uh, maturity happening into it. And so then leading into January, we added two groups. We added downtown. And then we added another one over here in Midtown. And right now we're at five groups. One of the beautiful things throughout this process of multiplication was at the start of this group, Drans were hosting it, I was leading it. Ever since we've left that group, I've not led a group. And that's important for us. The reason why that's important for us is because if I lead, that means it's not allowing someone else to come in and lead. It's not allowing for multiplication to happen. It's not allowing for others to be empowered, discipled, and ultimately um, encouraged to be able to using your gifts and your talents that God has uniquely wired you to use in order to multiply so that others come to know Christ. And so that brings us to kind of where we're at now as the district church. What we want to see is the leaders who are leading to continue fostering an opportunity or an environment in which they're bringing up someone within their group who can lead. And we love having couples, especially if if you're married, we love having couples lead groups together so that you're getting both aspects of male and female, being able to come to the table with leadership, being able to care for a group and counsel a group. And as we continue to do this, we're gonna see these groups kind of begin multiplying themselves out. And so one of the questions that I get the most, and this kind of goes into future for us, is what's next? It doesn't matter what size you are in a church, what stage of life you are, how old your church is, everyone's always asking the question, what's next for the church? And for me to answer that question, to kind of put the vision out there, is we want to see what's happening continue to happen. Now, there will come a day Obviously, in this room, there's only a small kind of capacity that we can fill. If we don't find another building within this area that can at least foster this this growing kind of midtown area, what we're also going to need to do is we're going to need to look at like where we're growing in our groups to look at an affinity for possibly putting a congregation in that area. So I'll take Carmel, for example. Right now, there's 8 to 10 people, Carmel group, 8 to 10 people. Say in the next couple of years, that's 8 to 10 people continue to grow and multiply. They're building relationships with their neighbors. And so they kind of start to like spawn off these other groups that are meeting in Carmel area. 
And each of those groups have eight to 10 people. And so now all of a sudden you have anywhere from, <laughs> do some math there. So there's seven groups, eight, you got 60 to 70 people, essentially what the district church is right now. 60, 70 people in that area. What we would look to do at that point is pray fervently. Pray fervently first and foremost for God to lead us in a way in which we would raise up leadership to be able to separate from, if we're still here, separate from the district church, kind of like Acts 13, as they had five people in leadership in that church and they took um, Paul and Barnabas and they set them apart and then sent them off. We would set apart and send off and then this right here would become a congregation in Carmel. No longer commuting down to this one, but their own autonomous church. Call it what you want. I don't care if it's the District Carmel or you call it the Church of Carmel or Carmel Community Church, Triple C. I don't care, all right? I don't come up. Like, naming the district, that's the last time I'll ever probably name a church. So, um, But anyways, they would be autonomous, okay? We're not like video feeding me in. I'm not that great of a communicator to do that. We don't have the resources to figure that out anyways. So we don't have to worry about that. We're just going to plant a church there. Let's also say downtown begins doing the same thing and you get other church or groups coming out. We would then plant a church down there and we would essentially have three churches around the city. And the reason why we want to do this is for a couple of reasons. If we were to just have this church just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and we're trying to pipe everybody into it, the first thing that goes, and for anyone who's been a part of a church larger than 500 people, let's say, you know people start falling through the cracks. Uh, intentionality begins to get sacrificed. Um, as far as the connecting and the hospitality of being able to be known and to know one another begins to wane as well. And as you start seeing those things happen, essentially what, what gets pushed to the curve first is discipleship. Because the amount of resources it takes to foster a large organization means that you've got to have a ton of people coming in the front door, but it also creates a big back door. Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible for mega churches to be able to do this. I know many mega churches that are out there who are able to do this in a way in which they can make disciples, glorify God, and they're running 12,000 people. But also, I know that they have multiple campuses as well. You rarely see one church of 12,000 people at one location doing discipleship well. So for us, we don't wanna water that down. We wanna keep the intentionality purposeful. We want to keep the relationships purposeful. We want to make sure that at the first, like at the, the very essence of why we exist is that God is being glorified and disciples are being made. Now, what would the relationship of these churches look like? They would be a family of churches that might share doctrine and distinctives. They might, in some ways, share some resources if, like, for example, downtown starts and they're in Fountain Square and you've got a bunch of millennials that don't have any money and they're like, we need a sound. I'm not trying to, like, staple you guys, but it's just kind of what came out. But 
you know, they, they might say like, hey, we, we need a sound system. We can't buy a sound system. And we're saying, you know what, let's, let's see what Carmel's got, you know, because <laughs> they probably have some resources. And so we'll just see if they can buy you guys a sound system. Like we're a family of churches that are encouraging one another. Kind of like when you, you know, were in college and you'd come home with your laundry and you're like, mom, dad, can you do my laundry? Like we're a family where we're still using one another and mooching off one another, but caring for one another to make sure that as they grow up and mature and become 18 and are sent off, they'll begin multiplying. And I would love to see other churches begin planting their own churches as they go out. It doesn't all have to be in Indianapolis. You can send someone out to another city, another country, whatever it looks like, because we want to make disciples of all nations. This is what we want to see happen. This is what multiplication looks like. But none of this will happen if the individuals that are in each of the original groups right now are not themselves as an individual multiplying. Like, I don't care about trying to plop groups up around everywhere if the individuals within the groups are not healthy. Like, we want to plant healthy groups that plant healthy groups that lead to planting healthy churches and that lead to planting healthy churches that last. That's what we hope for when it comes to our multiplication. Thank you for indulging me on my drawing there. I have a, I'm actually just going to close it out here. I have a huge timeline that I was going to walk you through from like AD 42 to now. Um, But if you're interested in that, I'll send it to you. Um, But it actually is, you can just see the spread and multiplication of Christianity from the time of Christ and how this is what he's been doing and it's continued to do across all people groups, across all languages. And so for us, it comes back again to that 2 Corinthians 5. He's entrusted to us this ministry of reconciliation. When you belong to a church, it's not just let me come and be served. Let me come and see what they have for me. But it's what is God doing in you that is making you think of yourself less and begin to think more of others. How do I begin worshiping in a way in which I steward my life? How do I belong so that I'm getting to know others and being known by them? How do I serve those around me as well as those within the church? And how do I multiply? How do I take what has been entrusted to me? As 2 Timothy 2.2 says, one of my favorite verses, as Paul's telling Timothy, what you have seen from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will also teach others. Four generations of multiplication there. Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others. I'm a product of that. And I think a lot of us in this room are a product of that as well. You've had others pour into you. And right now, one of the things that I'm loving in hearing at our church is kind of a resurgence of just people saying, I want more. I want to be discipled. I want uh, to know Christ deeper. Give me some reading plans that, that, you, um, that you love or, 
what Bible study can I connect into? We're having a lot of that conversation. So I kind of said this last week in one of our meetings. Um, I said, we have, a, we have a lot of Timothys right now. But honestly, what we don't have is a lot of Pauls willing to step up to disciple these Timothys. And so I'm hoping that maybe as, as this kind of stirs up within your heart and within your soul right now, that you just come to us and you just say, hey, what does it look like to be able to disciple? To be discipled and also to disciple. Because guys, at the end of the day, I'm still being discipled. I still am getting poured into. And so some of the language you always say is like, everyone needs a Paul, everyone needs a Barnabas, everyone needs a Timothy. Who's pouring into you? Who's, who are you kind of iron sharpening iron, walk, walking it out with um, as it comes to kind of peer-to-peer discipleship? And then also who is someone who might be new to the faith or new to Christianity or new to church or whatever it looks like that we're not even in church? I mean, I love the uh, conversation of discipling someone unto salvation. What does it look like to disciple? And so if you, wanna, if you want the answers to those questions, let's get coffee and let's talk, and let's figure out how we can begin multiplying ourselves individually. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at